Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for 7th of June 2021. I tried to get a few days off this last week, so I had the legs out, out in the field and got sunburnt and all the usual things that little lily-livered office boys get whenever they expose themselves to the weather. But the one thing that happened was the market was leaping around like a crazy thing, so I didn't really escape. There's been enough kind of issues that have arisen for people with some of the strategic plans to kind of have the phone never stop ringing, which is vaguely less pleasing. But anyway, it was largely, I've had lots of time out of the office which has been quite refreshing. I'm back in here today and yeah, wow, it's been a week and a half, isn't it? Underlyingly, the market started really firmly this last week. We've had, led by the US, they have been trading recently on the back of forecasts saying there's going to be plenty of rain. And the crop certainly has been planted, if we're talking about the corn crop, very well, very quickly. It's in good condition. It couldn't really be in much better condition at this moment in time. But we're trading on projected weather forecasts. So the dynamics of some areas, North and South Dakota in particular, are suffering a significant significant drought there isn't enough rain forecast so we had a very very firm start to the week and all right the market's come back a bit in several commodities that shirt tailed corn because at the same time the weather has been nigh on perfect for certain parts of our area you know let's get parochial and be in norfolk some places had some significant showers on thursday friday afternoon is forecast some nice heavy showers late afternoon and that's on top of phenomenally good ultraviolet sunlight and really warm weather and a crop that has just has been booming along it's in fabulous condition and although obviously the stuff that wasn't established well you know that went into sloppy old compacted fields you know some of those are really patchy and up and down but they're going to meet the optimum of what they possibly could bearing in mind they're in a cruddy condition more importantly you know that those fields will never be optimum over the whole field but some of the crops that went in well and have been planted at the right time and have had everything going for them they really are at this point the potential is enormous i shall be field walking a little bit later on today but you know, unfortunately I can't record what I see because I need to get this thing edited and out there but I suspect what I'm going to look at today is going to be some very healthy looking crops so we've got that happening and our market going up because of the US and this is the world we're in the dynamic of the UK market potential is actually bearish at this point due to a bigger crop coming and lots of farmers thinking oh I feel like selling it and at the same time we've got issues going on around the world which is pushing it up far too many to mention but the big players the states they are trading a projected weather forecast for not enough rain there is also a significant drought between turkey and pakistan that area there's also a significantly dry forecast and not very conducive big corn crop weather for northeastern china now so you need to expect an announcement from china there's a record crop coming any minute because that's the usual sort of thing you get when things aren't quite going to plan and we also have russia light on rain certainly in the forecast so there's lots of things in there that we've said you need to focus on other markets as being the leaders and it's proving very much to be true and all the time our crop i think if we keep getting this fabulous sunshine and occasional rain it's going to be the best scenario if we're being selfish for us 
So with that in mind, as far as the oilseed rape crop specifically is concerned, as I'm running on about weather, the big one at the moment to watch on that, there's not enough rain in Canada on their canola crop. So that needs also a forecast of a bit more rain, and that isn't there. So we've had a very volatile rate market this week. So if your guy you got a quote from is €10 or £10 out or whatever, don't blame him. His company isn't crap. What it means is we have a daily trading range of €20 a tonne on the market. So depending on the time of day you speak to someone, one, someone looked like a superstar or an idiot so give the trade a break at this moment in time the value for harvest rape is in the region of 440 to 445 but by the time this report comes out it will be significantly higher or lower how about that right prices i wish through them i think the feed barley old crop 180 which you know put it to bed it's it's july next month come on new crop 150x it's perked up there's been some further export trades done and there are shippers paying a really good price for feed barley so we're up again we were down in the 140s last week here we are i think that there is going to be a good constant ongoing demand for barley as we step into harvest so that's good news feed wheat old crop tough to move june wheat as everybody's got enough stuff lined up and farmers want their sheds cleared so there's been some discount prices trading july at a squeeze probably 198x would be a guess it is very very loose in east Anglia. there's not that much going on there is some trades to be done other parts of the country are paying a bit more money so if yorkshire's trading about 200 15 something like that you can probably get haulage if you got a backload for 15 pounds a ton so in other words it's going to be held up by demand from the northeast which leads on to new crop we're 170 extra november feed wheat at point of speaking that market went up eight pounds a ton which was out of sync with other markets we went up too much it's currently about three pounds fifty up from where we were last week so 170 x november harvest is going to be something like 163 or four something like that Malting barley is beginning to get talked about, low nitrogen craft. I do think there's a good chance we'll have some low nitrogen this year with the rain that we've had. So I would guess prices, winter barley's in the region of £175 a tonne and spring barley's £185 a tonne for low nitrogens. That is harvest movement that's an approximate value at this point not really keen to shove definitive prices out there if you haven't done anything and feel like selling some then fine have the proper conversation but that is always a very movable feast i don't feel immense fear at this moment about supply although there's less acres of winter barley certainly malting barley i do think that there is a bigger yield coming certainly on the spring barleys with the tillering and what have you that's going on Okay, that's the market report. The conversation in Farm Chat this afternoon is with Jim Alston. We continue our chat where we basically pick up on how one farmers cope with the dynamic changes in agriculture and income and how diversification and, if you like, positive attitude to change keeps a farm relevant for the future. You know, the times in 25 years that we've been working with each other, how things have changed and what things he's had to do to make it all work. Anyway, so enjoy and have a great week. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk.
And now it's time for Farm Chat. We're back with Jim. We had a great chat about the House from Grain and we've blown smoke up each other's backsides about how good we both are. We're going to talk now much more about the modern times and what Jim has done in the years since I've known him and how his farm has changed. So, Jim, welcome back. Hello. So, we were talking last week about 25 years ago. Let's look at 25 years ago, you had a dairy herd. You were a member of the Aylsham Grain Board. You were vice chairman of the marketing business. And were you then chairman at Lodden Farmers? 1996, it would have been. I was on the board. Right, okay. When did you become chairman at Lodden? That's a good question. I'm not sure. It would have been round about 2002. Okay. And you were in charge at the point of the merger with Mid-Norfolk Farmers? Yeah. The Mid-Norfolk Farmers chief executive, John Woods, came to see me because we'd sort of been in touch and uh, I knew he was retiring. We had a conversation and Ian Miller had left Lodden Farmers and we'd had various conversations over the period whereby... Should we be getting together? Shouldn't we be getting together? And basically between us, that was reinvigorated. The Mid-Norfolk board, led by Henry Edwards, were open to conversation about Lodden Farmers and Mid-Norfolk getting together. And with the assistance of George Bell, over the course of a year, was more or less completed. Clark Willis came on board halfway through that year and the whole thing was put together, which was great because I think the Anglia farmers that came out of it all functioned extremely well in providing its members with prices that the individual cooperatives could not possibly have managed. That took a fair amount of your time up, I'm quite certain. When you finally escaped it, did you have many other board involvements in lots of other places? That did take up too much time, to be quite honest. That was really my end of sitting on boards. boards. (laughs) (laughs) The marketing at Aylsham had finished. Wiseness, you see. (laughs) The Anglia Farmers One had taken up as much time as I wanted to devote to it. The trouble is that when you leave a job like that, which you think has taken up too much time, it's a bit like having an empty shed. You cleared the shed out and a year later it's full of stuff and you think, how could that possibly have happened? All that time I spent at Anglia Farmers and now I still haven't got enough time in the day. But yeah. that is just what happens and that is what happened to a degree. Well, that's what they reckon about retirement, by the way. <laughs> if you think about retiring, you won't ever put your feet up and do the Sudoku. You'll be planting yeah. well, lavender or something. You know, There's stuff you want to do, isn't it? So you had a dairy herd. When did that go? 2001 was when we sold it and went from dairying into fattening up Holstein calves to beef, which worked very, very well for 10 years. And we had potatoes then as well, which is also gone. Some of that money that came, for example, when you sell 400 animals and don't replace them, you get a bit of a lump of cash. And I managed to spend all that by investing it into Doffygate. Let's talk about that now. Actually, when I walked in... I went foolishly, you know, back down to the office where you always spent your time and Marion, your wife, was there and she said, oh, he doesn't work in this office, you know. I work in this office. He's in an office at the top of the yard. I went, oh, OK, sorry, Marion. I didn't really, I haven't been here for a long time. So you, you've escaped Marion and you're up here hiding in this top shed. I thought he's just bound to be a pokey little office. Big office. What is Doffygate? What made you diversify into something outside just farming, if I dare say that? I suppose it had just been a hankering of mine to try and get something off the ground that wasn't necessarily strictly agriculture. I'd had one or two ideas in the past. The luck with Doffygate was that I always had this idea that there must be a better way of getting in and out of a crowded yard full of cattle that wanted to leave as you entered. And you've got to get on and off a forklift or whatever you're using to feeding it four times to enter and leave a yard full yep. of cattle. And each time you stand on a sugar beet, twist your ankle... 
try and catch a door caught in the wind and so on. So you come up with all sorts of elaborate means to enable you to get in and out, but none of them are 100% successful. So one time after I had managed to let out two animals on a Saturday morning when I really wanted to be at Holt Rugby Club, lunch rather than uh, chasing animals around, I set about trying to get a means of making this process better. The first idea didn't work very well. But luckily, I had a friend I'd met on a networking activity called the Lavender Club. <laughs> and he had just retired. Very professional organisation. set himself up as a business advisor, but essentially, he wasn't a business advisor. He was someone a bit like me who really enjoyed designing stuff. And so he came as an advisor. I paid him once. He said he'd join me, and he is my fellow director. And that's Oliver Chesney. Mm-hmm. We set about developing the Doffy Gate. Uh, Doffy Gate, (laughs) D-O-F-Y. Believe it or not, we are international. This is all over the world. So you're going to be selling your gates in Australia next (laughs) week. We are. We sent sent four gates off to Australia last week. There you go. You need to look up Doffy Gate. It's a Norfolk business, proper homemade stuff, built on experience of people falling over sugar beet and letting their cattle out because they're in a hurry to get to the rugby club. What exactly is it? Just a brief description. Well, the first Doffy Gate, which is where the name came over, which is Drive Over Field and Yard Gate, was an electrified grid. You just lay in front of the gateway, you could drive over it, and it sprung back up without catching the axles. But it was a bit prone to straw spilling out of the yard and spoiling it. Well, not spoiling it, but shorting it out, essentially. We set out the parameters. It had to open and shut in less than five seconds. It had to be standalone. It had to be mobile. We came up with a carbon fibre gate and called it Driver Operated Field and Yard Gate, D-O-F-Y, and just stuck with the name, largely because there's nothing else on the internet called Doffy Gate. Fair enough, yeah, that worked. The big issue was 2014 was more or less the time when the milk price went from 30p to 20p in the space of 12 months. Yeah. And we had identified, on the basis of good business advice that you stick with the marketplace you know to start with. So I thought, well, I know about dairying. I know they want gates because they're always going backwards and forwards with cattle. We will aim for that. And so that didn't go down well because (laughs) no dairy farmer in the world, when their milk price had just gone down, was going to spend anything on my gates. So we had to think of different markets. And the markets we ended up with was where we are now, really, which was rural sites and building sites Mm -hmm. and... Safety is the key to our gate because building sites have to control access onto their site. Mm-hmm. They like our gate because that means the man that used to stand there can now do other stuff and work the gate remotely. And we are now working with a company called Hardstaff, which you will be familiar with indirectly because whenever you go along a roadworks and you see those steel barriers that create the lanes, yep. that's what Hardstaff rent out. Okay. And they have now taken our barrier on. Yeah, that makes sense. Remotely means someone a mile down the road can see someone at the thing and press a button and the gate opens for a lorry to bring some tarmac in. Is that That's the sort, the sort of, of thing, because what does happen <coughs> is the motorist strays into work areas. They, yeah. they have to get in and out of the work areas off the active lanes themselves, but of course motorists tend to come in with them or just dive in there. And even when I was going round one of the roadworks on the M5, a lorry actually pulled in to the works area and it was just bonkers what he did. But the point was, he was a foreign lorry driver. His tachograph had told him that he had to pull over. So he pulled over as soon as it said that. And he'd gone to the last minute. And he was in a works area. And there have been workmen killed. They are very hot on this particular thing. And so my barrier is being used 
you can drive through the barrier. It's not going to stop a lorry, but it is very effective in bringing yeah. people's attention to the fact they should not. It's be a physical border. It's a physical so border. They stop. Yeah, and it's constructed of light material. What has electric? You know, if you're using it for animals, I assume it gives them some sort of shock or something. Yeah, it? we built our own <coughs> energizer, so it only produces a shock when the gate bars are touched, and the gate bars are carbon fiber, which is conductive. Mm. So that's how the cows quickly, or horses, I assume learn don't touch that gate it'll give you a zap that you don't really want yeah we did a lot of work on that and it introduced me to the curious quarter which i always call it because it roughly worked out 25 percent of any group of animals are curious enough to touch the barrier more than one once it's in place it's not actually going off very often but you would have thought the animals that get a shock are going to be the ones that never touch it again when actual fact the reverse <laughs> is true the curious quarter a bit like humans in the sense that they just can't resist testing it and it will be the same ones every time that test your fence whatever people do spring to mind instantly yeah curious curious quarter quarter, and they just can't resist it you'll have a quarter of them that'll just lie around eating straw (laughs) and doing nothing just watching what the others do and the other half of the herd will just basically follow yeah and go idiot (laughs) if they get out well we'll go with them if they don't get out well they just got a shock ha 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 We tested all this, we electrified a a ball of wire and put different shocks on it and we measured how often animals played with that ball of wire on a sort of a swing thing. So we could tell an animal nuzzled the ball of wire or played with it, which they liked playing with it. And so we kept increasing the shock until they stopped playing with it and then we measured how long it took for them to start playing with it again. We'd set a bit of an arbitrary parameter... If you put on a really strong shock, they wouldn't go near it again for a week. And when we first built our gate and we took it away to get the animals out of the paddock, we'd put such a strong shock on it, it took a week to get them to go through the gateway. The thing is, animals associated pain Mm -hmm. with the area the pain is in, not necessarily the object that gave them the pain. They don't know about electricity, of course, so they just say, well, I'm not going through the gate, I've got a shock. So if the shock is too strong, you can't get animals out of the paddock. So it had to be just right. Did you you envisage all this this research? You think you have... I'm going to have to do all this, or did you think it would be easier than that when you set out? No, it was was a sort of challenge. I mean, at the time, you know, everything I was doing was homemade, and Mm. so we got to the final product, and it sort of, yeah, we could sell this, and people are interested in it, and we got quite a big grant from the Technology Strategy Board, as it was called then. It's now called Innovate UK, Mm -hmm. and they gave us a grant to develop the prototype, and that really is what enabled the whole thing. Do you enjoy that, the success, the being involved, the selling of the product, your invention, something you're, you're very personally proud of? Over the years, you know, which has been the best thing to do? Is it a mixture of everything or where's it got you? I don't know. I mean, where's it got me? Well, it hasn't got me far enough yet, but we are on the right road now, I think, working with these bigger companies. What Doffygate does, it, it produces challenges that there's no answer written down for those challenges. You can't go to a textbook and say, that's the answer. Someone else has researched it. Very often the problems that we're solving are problems that haven't been solved by anybody yet. That's the bit I do enjoy. The thing I'm trying to get to is personal satisfaction is, I mean, forgive me for this, and you could have just farmed, couldn't you? And that just, oh, we we work harder than you realize. But could have just farmed and not bothered with an ancillary extra thing. So the dynamic of doing what you're doing has brought a whole new load of You know, people complaining about the product, people sending stuff back, all of the things and miseries completely alien to agriculture specifically. It's extra work. Is it rewarding? Does it give you more than just farming? 
In many respects, yes. In other respects, no, I still thoroughly enjoy farming and the environment that I live in. And, and we are actually altering a bit at the moment, which you will have seen some diggers and stone outside the window of the office house because we're part of a Scarabeck restoration project in conjunction with the National Trust. OK. And that's quite significant. The level of the river is going to be raised. We're putting in some wetlands, all this sort of stuff. So I know I'm enjoying that. And the farming, as you know, we had a group farm called Calibre Farming, which is three farms working together. Mm-hmm. I've tried to sort of make it so that the people we have on the farm working for us now are, they, and they are, largely self-managing. And that's working very, very well. So your involvement in the farming on a daily basis must have reduced. And so by sort of empowering the guys that work for you, they're able to do what they need to do. Yeah, they're taking on that role. Yeah, so you're still farming. If you took farming away from you as an individual, it, to me, it would be like your right arm yeah, missing because be you a are hole. a proper yeah, farmer. Yeah. You understand it. You've been brought up your entire life doing it. Not necessarily very good at it, but I do enjoy <clears> it. <throat> Mind everybody, that's very nice of you to be modest. Obviously, you must be good enough at it. You've succeeded. You're sitting here with a successful business that's gone on and you've evolved as the market has dictated. You didn't keep dairy herds because you always had dairy herds you thought nope this ain't working we're going to drop it you've had enough about you to innovate and create success that's what success is you could have just ditched it sold out and i don't know invented doffy gate lying on a beach in the caribbean but i don't think you'd have been very happy knowing you no i wouldn't i enjoy what i do on a day-to-day basis and i enjoy the challenges that that creates i don't shoot, though I used to, but the, the wildlife was a lot safer when I was in one of the eight guns, that's for sure. <laughs> and I uh, never did much damage to anything, as anyone who shot with me will testify. But that was what I enjoy if I have a pastime, then it is either up here or farming. That's what I spend my time doing, or going to help rugby club. Yeah, which uh, we've missed the last season or which two. Which we, we have missed. Yeah. But hey, we're back any minute now, next season. <laughs> the future? Where do you see the future? What do you think happens next to agriculture? What does this farm do? How does it evolve in your remaining 50 years, or how long are you going to live, Jimmy? What do you think? So we're trying to create a farm that is quite a mixed farm. It has got seriously enhanced environment aspects to it. There's 100 acres of meadows in on 600-acre farm, so yeah. that's a significant part. So mm-hmm. those meadows are moved from carrying 150 dairy cows and followers into now being part of a restoration project on Scarabeck. And I think that is going to enhance the value of the farm quite considerably Mm. because I think that's the way farming and rural value, if you like, is going to be interpreted. Yes, farming will continue. Whatever happens, I don't think a piece of land of Grade 2 Norfolk agricultural land is going to sit there doing nothing for long before someone says, I can grow something on that and Mm. sell it and make a profit. Yeah. But I do think there's going to be a lot more interest in what's happening environmentally. I think there'll be government support for it. And I do think the public is taking a hell of a lot more interest in the environmental aspects of their rural environment than they used to. So, Scarabek, this project is going to mean more public access? No. Right from the outset, we have said that this scheme is all about providing a facility for the wildlife. It's not a facility for the public. Oh, that's great. So, and so that is absolutely fundamental to it. So yes, whoever owns the land, me in this instance, can go down there and enjoy it, and I intend to. Mm-hmm. But it's not intended that the population of Erpingham and Calthorpe, albeit they're not very big, but mm. it's not intended to provide a facility for them. That may happen indirectly, and I'm not going to sit there and chuck them off the farm if they set foot on it but I intend to make everyone aware that they do not have a right to walk over it 
because uh, than they would have normally. In other words, it's not there for them. It's an objective, is, is the actual na- natural aspect to it, yes, the, the improvement of the environment. Yeah, that is the point. The environment. So, for example, if we create a footpath along the river, mm. which we've just spent a lot of time enhancing, then what we do is we create a block between the river and the land, the other side of it, that is going to be constantly patrolled by people and dogs. So that is going to really go against the environmental objectives. Right, now, so there is the key point. If you just said the first part of that paragraph in that we're not going to allow the people of Carthorpe Urbion to walk up and down here, people would interpret that. you get a soundbite from a you know, Radio 4 interviewer and you'd be dead meat. You'd be, this is what farmers like, get off my land, you can't come down there, I'll enjoy it, but you can't. But the reality is, if you create an environment that is designed to improve it and get it back to what it used to be, you cannot have a footpath that goes alongside it. It has to be pristine, on its own, land connected to the river with no human-dog interference. This is about actually doing something environmental as the priority and not create a footpath. That's absolutely right. And yeah, yeah you're right, that could be misinterpreted, what I said, taken in isolation. I've never said to anybody, get off my land, and I've got no shortage of people walking on it. Hmm. But I intend to make it well known that this is an environmental... Through through the parish council, we are going to hopefully get the school involved, quite near one of the environmental areas, and it is a forest school, Erpium. I intend to make it clear to everybody that this is primarily about the environment. Which, again, you need government, you need lots of bodies to make very clear that lots of this environmental investment the objective is to improve the environment not just make people from the cities have somewhere nice to walk with their dogs they can kill a few sheep i'm very well aware and that is a fear of mine what you've just described is Mm. a big fear of mine and i'm sure it's a fear of other farmers who've chosen not to partake they probably will have to if they want some money from the government in the next 10 years but nevertheless, the government is not helping this in public access or the knowledge of it, I don't think. And I don't no. think we're very good at saying why we're doing stuff. My wife sells signs, and a lot of the signs now she's selling are to do with, look, this is a wildlife margin, please don't walk on it. If the signs aren't knocked over or broken, because people don't respect this, they don't understand that walking a dog through a wildlife margin actually is not going to help the wildlife very much. It's going to spoil the objective. But that is the key message. Everybody believes the investment in the environment is nothing whatsoever to do with the environment, it's to do with public access. That's the general public's perception of what the government is saying. It's convenient for them to have that message underlyingly believed because that's what gets them votes. If they realise that really planting lots of these trees and doing lots of these things that we're doing is actually about having pristine land that isn't disturbed so wildlife can genuinely get on with it with no human observation then the public are going to realise that, oh, well, that means we can't walk in that wood then. Yeah, well done. Yeah, and of course the public are a lot more aware now than they were 25 years ago that farmers get quite a bit of money from the government. And so they see, well, you know, there's that wildlife strip. I actually invested in that. Yeah, it's mine. So I have a right to walk on it. Let's go and stand on a few eggs. And so, no, you don't, because actually the government invested in the environment. The farmer is the vehicle for that investment. It's not for you, actually, primarily, albeit, you know, there are other areas you can walk on. We're not going to say you can't go there, but please understand that you are walking on a very valuable crop. It is called the environment, and you can't walk your dog on there willy-nilly. I think we're about to go through a very difficult phase, aren't we, in government and farmer relationship. The fishermen have been thrown under a bus. 
the farming's next, I'm afraid, for a little while. I'm very sceptical about the trade deals and I'm very sceptical about the message that the government's prepared to give. But there has to be a point the other side where there isn't enough food produced in this country. You know, strategic supplies, stuff like that, is just not being considered. Let's have beef from Australia where they can travel across the country for 48 hours with no food and no water. And then that'll be counted as the same high standards as ours. Nah, this is all being brushed under the carpet by Liz and crew at the, in the government. And I think that until we get to a point of food inflation and where we're reliant on too many other people, in other words, UK farmers actually pull back from producing it because they can't compete. And there's a need or a requirement for in this unstable world, boats are stopped in the Suez Canal or whatever it is. And there's a shortage, the realisation of what we're doing to food supply I think, and agriculture being mistreated. I think that's the sort of mire we're heading to in the next 10, 15 years. I think you're right. Agriculture just taken in its ploughing, drilling, harvesting a crop, that sort of agriculture, or growing leeks in the fens, take the first part, agriculture, it doesn't employ that many people. And the people where it does seem to employ large numbers are imported foreign part-time labour. So as far as the government is concerned the bit it's looking for, is who is actually fully employed in agriculture, and it's Mm. fewer and fewer people. So it's not looking at agriculture, it's looking at the rural environment. Yeah. Right, Jim, I think we've kind of covered the world. We've seen so many changes in the time that we've been trading with each other. A couple of old codgers now, just about. Well, I'll speak for myself there, obviously. I wish you well in the future. Thank you very much for talking to us and going through what's going on with Calthorpe Farms. Thanks, Jim. Andrew, pleasure to see you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.